Good morning, Erica. Good morning, listeners. Ah, well done. <laughs> and good morning, Sean. Yeah, good morning, folks. Or good afternoon, or good evening. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you might be driving. How do you listen to podcasts? Driving. Ah. Or working out. Or um, mowing the lawn. Not that I've done that for a while, because I have no grass. Um, or going for a run. Somebody said, Sean, I listen to the podcast while I'm running. So you have to say, go, Stell, go. <laughs> so that's for you, Stell. <laughs> Dig deep, run fast. <laughs> this topic that we're tackling today is a big one. And it's one that, that we grapple with a lot in our working world. So this is for you, nurses. If you're not a nurse and you're listening right now, feel free to continue listening but I want you to understand that you may see a lot of parallels in the way that this relates to your life, but we really want this to land for our nurses and all the people who work around them, but particularly you know, 60% of our workforce here is nurses. And we were sent a profoundly affecting article by the wonderful Leah who shared it and it really outlines the case of how difficult things are at the moment for our nurses and how hard they're doing it, not just with one or two things, but this multifaceted slam dunk of, of you know, the, the world that's landed on their heads at the moment trying to do it. That was a terrible analogy. <laughs> Crikey. I am a little worked up about all of this, so excuse the analogies when they completely miss. But it's called Here to the Nurses. Now, Erica, you understand that I'm an Apple tragic, and I'm so proud that you got your first MacBook. Thank you. So many conversations in that alone. But so I used to work for Apple and um, I'm inspired by Steve Jobs, as I'm sure I've said before at this very microphone. But there was this, this wonderful advertising campaign called Here's to the Crazy Ones. And whenever I hear this, it inspires me to be different and to think outside the box and to be who I am rather than who I think people want me to be. And there's a particular quote at the end of this poem which says... Here's to the crazy ones, because the people who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. And lately, as I've heard that, I've been thinking about nurses, because the people who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world or change the world for a patient are the ones who do. And it's only when we think, I can actually make a difference to this person, and we invest ourselves in that, that we make a difference for that person. It's a lot of Sean. <laughs> I feel like you've got a lot of energy that we need to channel. Oh, really? Keep going. Okay, blimey. So this article that, that we read, it, it talks about um, self-care for nurses, a blueprint for leadership. So basically talking about minimising burnout and moral distress amongst the nursing workforce of the world at the moment because nowhere is exempt from this. Is there a small island? Was it Mauritius? Somewhere had no cases. The Antarctic might be the only place that has no cases, but... Because it has no people. It has no land mass. <laughs> what are you talking about? People... Oh, Antarctic. Yes. I was thinking Arctic. No. All right, we're back. Welcome. <laughs> um, so all of these things have happened in this perfect storm together, which has landed on, on the nursing profession. Nurses are being asked to do more work now than than they have traditionally and nursing has always been a busy profession but so much more busy now and it's not just with the high demand of the patients but it's with all the extra processes that they're being asked to do during a pandemic to keep themselves and their patients safe and often now with less breaks to boot which makes it even harder to do that work 
there's the fear that comes in, I think, not only around the, the health and well-being of their patients, which is always a primary concern, mm. but there's also, it now extends to personal health and well-being and safety and then family. And many people also have family who are affected by this. And a lot of us have family who live abroad and mm. who are really in the thick of it. And mm. so there are so many layers, none of which we really leave behind. They come with us. Mm. I was listening... Uh, I, <laughs> I'm the guy that got up at five o'clock this morning to do a webinar on moral injury in the pandemic. Oh my goodness, Sean. But there's this one lady that said it so beautifully. She said, people have to make an active decision to put themselves in the way of potential illness and death in order to do their job caring for other people. Oh, wow. What a terrible burden to have to take on and actively choose to do that because that's what you believe in. Can we unpack the concept of moral injury and moral distress a bit? Because those are new terms for me. Yeah. But they really resonate. I think that they encompass and describe something that many of us are feeling. And, and that's unique to other things. People understand what burnout is. Burnout is when you're so exhausted and desensitized to something that you lose your own innate sense of energy and well-being. Whereas this concept of moral injury, moral distress, is when you know the right thing to be doing and you know what you want to be doing to care for people according to your own moral and ethical code, but the organisational systems that you're working in or the, the practical constraints that you find yourself in stop you from doing the thing you morally and ethically know you should be doing. So it's this dissonance between what you are doing and what you morally know you should be doing for the well-being of your, your patients and the fact that you can't actually do that begins this process of self-loathing and guilt and shame and and self-doubt and cynicism that just slowly starts to build that is profound for me right now and i imagine that a lot of people that would really fall very heavily absolutely um, I, I think that just the limitations that we're confronted with right now whether it's the fact that our patients can't have family members mm. at their bedside yeah you know just watching your patients suffer without uh -huh. someone at their bedside uh -huh. is is traumatizing uh -huh. you know, it's, and the concerns about limitations in ppe that the conflict between knowing that you are endangering yourself mm. and your family, mm. the limitations in, in resource allocation, mm. you know, the fact that there are things that we would want to do and want to provide for our patients that we cannot in these moments because we just don't have enough fill in the blank. Yeah. And, and for a lot of our nursing staff is they don't have the time to do the thing I want to do for this patient right now because I'm so slammed with everything being asked of me at the moment on top of my normal difficult patient load and then on top of that it's not just all of this moral distress that people are dealing with but then we've taken away people's ability to process that by isolating them mm. so for so much of the time that people have been going through this we've said you can't see your friends you can't hug your friends you can't go out for a drink you can't socialize and be a part of those bigger social spaces where you get to do your debriefing and your coping so let's pause for a moment and just validate the angst and the anguish that everyone is feeling right now yeah if you're listening to this you are profoundly affected if you're a nurse or a medical worker and you're listening to this, my goodness, you are in the midst of a perfect storm 
that is weighing you down, whether you acknowledge it or not, it's there and it's affecting you scarily. Also, there's the whole threat to people's livelihoods because so many of our, I know that the moment this hit and we had to stop all of the elective surgery, all of the casual shifts got cut and so many of our staff couldn't come to work. And that's difficult for the, the staff, but it's also difficult for the managers who are having to tell their staff, you can't come and earn an income for your family. And they then have to go home and toss and turn thinking about what they're doing to their teams. And the poor people who are at the end of it are tossing and turning thinking, how am I going to pay my bills? I've got less hours. And then for those of us who are lucky enough to continue in our work, so many people have been told you will be redeployed. When it hits the fan and we enter a, a difficult phase, we're going to ask you to leave your role that you've been doing for the last, you know, insert number of decades here and go and do something different that you're not adequately trained for, but we need you because people are in dire risk and a warm body is better than nobody. So we need you to go and do something that you're not you know, feeling confident to be able to do. So this redeployment just adds this whole layer of anticipatory stress onto people as well. So we talked a little bit about moral injury and can you distinguish that a bit, please, from moral distress? So moral distress is the process of becoming distressed by that dissonance and then moral injury is what you end up with. And I think you had mentioned before that it doesn't come and go, that it accumulates. Yeah, sadly. I've told you about Chernobyl, this incredible um, miniseries about, about dealing with the radiation in Chernobyl after the, the reactor explosion. And one for me, one of the scariest scenes was when the reactor blew up all of these chunks of graphite, which were crazy, crazy radioactive, um, like... I think the safe level of radioactivity is 100 and these were emitting something like 16,000, like just way off the chart. And they needed to clear them and they got all these robots to come in and try and push them, but the robots just stopped working because the radiation was so strong that it, it just it neutralised their componentry. It just killed them. Oh. Like they got the Mars rover that they'd been working on and it just couldn't function. And so they got what they deemed organic robots, I think the term was. Essentially, they conscripted young Ukrainian people to come and clear them off the roof. The thing about radiation poisoning is that you have a certain amount of radiation you can be exposed to in your lifetime, and you don't get over that. So in order for them to do this job, the safe level of exposure was 90 seconds. And they could only be on that roof for 90 seconds. And after that, they would have received their lifetime's level of poisoning that their bodies could manage without you know, significant Whoa. injury, illness and death. But once they've done that 90 seconds, so I think it was something like 7,000 of them had to go and do that for 90 seconds. But once they'd done that 90 seconds, they said, we thank you for what you've done for the Soviet Union. You can do nothing more because you have now absorbed your entire lifetime supply because that will never go down. That will never be healed. That will never be made whole again. That poisoning will be in your body until you die. So no more radiation for you. You know, Don't even use a microwave. <laughs> I don't think they were invented. Um, no, I'm sure they were. For me, that was such a scary concept of the damage that you take on never goes away. And it's not quite as bad as a lifelong sentence when it comes to moral injury, but the moral injury that we get doesn't just spontaneously heal after a week off it continues to carry on from one situation to the next to the next. And the only way we deal with this is when we are able to stop 
and process this with other people who are going through a similar thing and actually work on that stuff. It doesn't just spontaneously go away. So when we think, I'll take a long weekend and I'll come back and I'll feel refreshed, and we come back and we still have that sense of cynicism and hurt inside of us, and we still feel the sense of shame at the fact that I'm not able to do my job, and you think, oh, I thought I'd feel better after those days off. But it doesn't spontaneously go away, the sense of moral injury which is then made even harder when we're trying to work in a process where we don't understand everything to do with the COVID illness that we're dealing with and we don't understand why policy is being handed down to us. So we're working in a situation that's asking us to do things outside of our safety net and oftentimes we don't understand the reasoning behind that, which makes it you know, a factor of, of multiplication about how much trauma that causes. So even before pre-COVID, there were some staggering statistics about burnout. Right? Mm. So there was the I think the article had mentioned that estimates of nurse burnout ranged from thirty-five to forty-five percent. And that's on a good day, right? Yep. And they said that was pre-COVID. It's more than one in three nurses are burnt out normally. And so, what did they say about the extreme extremeness? Exponential <laughs> increase. Yeah. Yeah. So what's it now? Well, they, they did research. This is published this month, August. And the research said that at the moment, two out of three nurses are not just burnt out, but two out of three nurses are actively considering leaving their job or leaving the profession altogether. That's two out of three. So if you're a nurse and you're listening to this and this has crossed your mind, you are in the majority because so severe is the stress that this cohort is under at the moment, that the only rational thing to do is to think, how do I protect myself? I've got to get out. But thankfully, there are other ways that we can manage this, hopefully, other than escaping nursing, because boy, does our world need nurses right now. And lucky I woke up early this morning and listened to this webinar, because it spoke about what do we do? How do we overcome this moral distress? Now I'm looking at private notes that I haven't shown you, because I've only just come across this, but... <laughs> They said that the most significant thing we can do, which is what uh, intuitively we knew, which is why we're doing this podcast, is the number one thing you can do is talk to each other about this. Because the moment we talk to each other, we validate the fact that it's not just me going through it. It's not a problem that I have. This is the situation in which I find myself and which I'm living through. So we have to not sit in silence, but we have to say, this is a horrendous situation that I'm in. I need to talk to my colleagues about this. I need to process it. You know, you love journaling, whatever it is that people can do to, to actually process what's going on for themselves. That's what people need. Acknowledging our vulnerability, acknowledging that this is hard. This is unprecedented. We have no experience dealing with anything like this, nor does anyone around us. Mm. There are no answers. There's no right but there is no wrong either and so I think just embracing that vulnerability and knowing that you're not alone that other people are going through this and if you just reach out gently or in a little way people will respond and then the flip side is if if you feel like somebody is reaching out to you mm. respond mm. show that kindness and we need to be there for each other mm. and when you talk about sharing that vulnerability if you're a leader listening the best thing you can do to support your teams is to show some vulnerability and to show the fact that you're probably not okay dealing with this because as hard as it is for, for all of our nursing staff on the front line dealing with all of these things, 
nobody's protected all the way up the chain to our nurses who are running you know, national organisations. These decisions that people are having to make, you know, when people are having to allocate PPE to different wards, when there's a greater need than what you have to allocate, that causes this moral damage that's going on. No one is immune to it. So if you're in a position of leadership, please don't be 10 foot tall and bulletproof and be dealing with this all quietly by yourself in your heart of hearts. Share it because the moment you share it, that validates your team and nothing is going to help your team be able to be their best selves and do the work that they can do with compassion and kindness. Nothing's going to help them more than feeling okay within themselves and that all starts with our leaders showing some vulnerability. And how do, how do you as a nurse encourage your leader to show vulnerability? Share your vulnerability with them. If we can all just let our guard down for a moment and just be real with each other about how terribly difficult the situation is, it's going to make such a difference. One of the most profound things I heard this morning was from a guy in, um, in this big hospital in Texas and talking about not trying to do it by yourself. He said, you don't get by without community you don't want to be left to die in a silo by yourself. You don't make it alone. You make it with others. You don't want to be left to die in a silo by yourself. Oh, my goodness. And this is what we do. We think, I don't want to look like I'm weak because I feel like I'm, I'm falling apart on the inside. So what do we do? We build a silo around ourselves and we protect ourselves because we think that's going to help. Well, that's the worst thing we can possibly do. We've got to let our guard down. We've got to show that it's not just you that's suffering, but I'm suffering with you. How are you doing, Erica? You're doing great? <laughs> I'm You've been amused to I'm all of this? I'm suffering with you, Sean. Oh, man. The number of tears I've shed in the last few months is ridiculous. And the number of times I've come home and Yvonne says, Oh, Sean, what's wrong? And I said, Oh, my goodness. People are doing it so tough. And... I've found this really personally challenging, you know, professionally challenging, yes, but boy, it's it's really worn me down. And normally when people say, how are you going, Sean? The stock standard response is, I'm fantastic, but I haven't been able to do it. This last week I felt pretty good, but boy, it, it's been a long, hard slog, Erica, and there's no end in sight. And when we think about the trauma that a difficult period of time can cause people, normally when we're going through a trauma, we can see the end of it. We can see there is a point of resolution, a point at which I can look forward to. And psychologically speaking, the fact that we don't know how long this pandemic is going to go on, on for, that causes more of an impact than most of those other things because there is no projected end date when I know the suffering is going to end. But we'll get through it together. Together. By being real and being honest with each other. Well, that's profoundly sad. It's not, actually. But it's, yeah, it's real. If it's not sad, Erica, what is it? It's an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity for us to embrace that vulnerability as uncomfortable as it is and to support each other. That's why we're doing this. Mm. And that's why people go into nursing in the first place. And we will get through this together. Yeah. So here's to the nurses. Here's to the nurses. You're not in it alone, folks. Let's let's reach out. Let's connect. Let's let down those silos. <sighs> good luck as you do that, Erica. Thank you. And good luck to all of you, our beloved listeners, as as you continue to do this really important work through this really tough time. <laughs> <laughs>